Well, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Lucas. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen, and we are so thrilled that you joined us here this morning. And, and I don't know about you, but the last week has been pretty crazy. Been a lot of Netflix for me. It's been a lot of Netflix for you. I think a lot of us are catching up and re-watching The Office or whatever it is that, that you're doing. And, and I wanted to let you know that I've struggled this week. I've started to go a little bit stir crazy. And one of the only things that has got me through is the ability to connect with this community of believers. And you're thinking, Luke, how are you connecting with this community of believers with social distancing and you know, stay arm's length and all of that stuff? Well, I have had the, I've had the opportunity to connect digitally in a number of ways. And so as we kind of, over the next couple of weeks, relearn how to do church in a lot of ways, I need to just pass this information on to you exhort you, encourage you, beg and plead with you for the sake of your emotional health and spiritual health to connect with this body digitally. Here's a few ways you can do that. Instagram and Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're going to send out emails. We're going to send out blasts. We're going to send out notification, those kinds of things. And much of that will be happening through our social media channels. I just mentioned emails. You can sign up right there online on the front page of BayviewGlen.org to receive uh, my weekly emails. We're going to keep you updated and encouraged to the best of our ability. Uh, on the front page there, you'll see a thing that says COVID-19 response, our Bayview kids, Bayview youth, life groups. So much of what we're, we are doing here have completely pivoted so that we can do that in a digital context. As a matter of fact, even life groups are open right now. Can you believe that? You can get in a life group now and connect digitally. Just jump on our life group page, look for one that's open near you, and uh, the group leader will let you know how you can connect digitally digitally. You can also start a giving plan, believe it or not. You can give in a number of different ways uh, digitally. And, and so we're not, you know, obviously not passing the plate in here and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I want you to be able to build that discipline into your life as we seek to reach the community and continue to move the mission of God forward all across the greater Toronto area. Uh, listen, it's so critical that we continue to connect with one another as a body of believers. And we can do that digitally. Uh, even on our prayer wall, you can hop on our prayer wall. It's right there on the front page of our website. You can post your prayer request. People can go on and view your prayer request and click that they prayed for you. And you can know that people in your faith community are praying for you and with you. Let's put our hands in the middle here. Not touch, not touching, not touching. We're not supposed to touch. But hands in the middle and say, we are going to continue to be God's church, the local expression of, of his community right here in the greater Toronto area, even if we have to transition to a digital platform. So that's my encouragement just to kind of start us off here. And we're going to continue in our series in the book of Daniel. I've had people ask me, are you going to talk about COVID? Are you going to talk about coronavirus? No, I'm going to talk about God's word because that's what I love, that's what I'm passionate about, and quite frankly, it's absolutely extraordinarily relevant, apropos and timely for us this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll get into the word. God, thank you for the opportunity to leverage technology so that we can remain connected as a body. I'm thankful, God, even for the texts I've already received this morning of people that are tuning in, my friends and family, uh, that are right here with us in this room in spirit, as we rally to hear from your word and uh, hear what you have to say to us today. God, block out distractions. I know this is a little bit of a different 
um, moment for us as a church and a different way to connect as the church, a different way to gather corporately, even a different way for me to preach. And so I pray that you would block out distractions and that you would help us, God, as a community, hear what you have to say. In the name of Christ, the people of God, with enthusiasm said, amen. John uh, chapter 10 tells us that at the time of the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, Jesus was there, and it was winter. It's very, very interesting because there are three major feasts in the Old Testament where people, Jews from all over first century Palestine, would have gathered together. It's the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Weeks. And those three feasts take place in different times throughout the year. One of them takes place in the spring, that's Passover. One of them takes place around May, and one of them takes place in the fall. So if you look back at this passage that John says Jesus was at a feast of dedication that took place in Jerusalem and it was winter, if you don't know what happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, you wouldn't have any idea what feast this was. You would read it and go, well, that doesn't make sense because there is no feast that takes place in the winter. There's one in the spring, there's one in May, there's one in the fall. There isn't a feast in wintertime. What in the world is Jesus doing there? Well, there was no Jewish feast in the wintertime until the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 was fulfilled. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 8. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. What is this text, Daniel chapter 8, about? Well, it's about a vision. It's about a vision. We know, Daniel repeats that word three times, that he is going to have a vision of what's to come, as a matter of fact. He's transported to the Uli Canal in the province of Elam, in this kind of fortified city called Susa, not physically, but just kind of mentally and spiritually, and he sees this vision. And before we talk about the vision, I want to talk about timing. So let's talk timing real quick. Let's, let's talk timing. What we know about the book of Daniel is that uh, the, the, the chapters obviously are laid out in sequential order. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. But they are not laid out chronologically. That is to say, instead of going like this from left to right, they're kind of interwoven together. And so I want you to know when, kind of in our history in the book of Daniel, when this vision takes place. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 have already happened. That's the Babylonian exile, exile where Nebuchadnezzar has come in and sacked Jerusalem. The Daniel diet's already happened. The fiery furnace with Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah have already happened. And in chapter 5, if you remember, is the writing on the wall where Belshazzar, king of Babylon, sees this writing on the wall. He knows that his kingdom is going to end. And the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and overtakes Babylon and takes over the Babylonian Empire. 
And so what we know then is that Daniel has just told us that his vision takes place in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. That is to say that these ominous visions of Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 take place between chapters 1 through 4 and before chapter 5. This is before Belshazzar has been ousted. It's in the third year of his reign. Before Babylon has been overtaken by the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel sees these ominous visions. So the timing here is that it's about 550 BC and it's in Belshazzar's third year of his reign. And so Daniel, during that time, sees a vision. And in Daniel chapter 8, he records the vision that he sees. And and Daniel chapter 8 is just two parts. Part 1 is the vision, and Daniel records that. Then, after the vision, a heavenly creature shows up and interprets the vision to him. So part 2 of Daniel chapter 8 is the meaning. Part one is the vision, part two is the meaning. And what we're going to do is go back and forth between the two because there's three parts of the vision and three parts of the meaning. So we'll go part one of the vision uh, and then part two and, and part one of the vision and then check out its meaning. Part two of the vision, check out its meaning. Part three of the vision and check out its meaning. You'll be able to stick with me, I promise. So let's begin with Daniel's vision and take a look at what he sees. Daniel writes this, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing at the bank of the canal. So part one of this vision is going to be all about a ram, a ram. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last and I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, if I saw a vision like this, if you saw a vision like this, we would go, what in the world does this mean? We have no idea what the interpretation is, what the significance is. Hence the entrance of a heavenly creature that interprets the vision for Daniel. And this heavenly creature says to Daniel, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. These are the kings of Media and Persia. The two horns of the ram represent those two kings. And if you've been with us in the study of Daniel, you know who those two kings are. We'll talk a little bit about them. The ram, once again, are the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, the, the, the vision that Daniel sees also says that, that of the two horns, one of the kings is more prominent, or one of the horns is more prominent. Uh, Darius the Mede was king uh, of that part of the empire, and Cyrus the Great was the king in the other part of the empire. Now, uh, extra biblical books, other historical books of antiquity, have no mention of Darius the Mede. We only know about Darius from Scripture, but all these other historical documents tell us of all the conquering and exploits, etc., of Cyrus the Great. In other words, Cyrus the Great was the more prominent of those two kings, thus, a more prominent horn. 
As a matter of fact, uh, the vision also tells us there in verse 3 that the more prominent horn came up second. The more prominent horn came, out, came up second. This is actually true according to history. Darius the Mede was kind of initially uh, part of uh, the conquering of the Babylonian Empire, and Cyrus kind of came after him but rose up to greater prominence. So in terms of chronological order, Darius the Mede was first, uh, Cyrus, the sec- Cyrus the Great was second, and yet more prominent. Uh, We're told that that ram charged northward, uh, southward, and westward. The ram in Daniel's vision charged northward, southward, and westward. I want you to take a look at a map of the Medo-Persian Empire uh, from, from that time period. The Medo-Persian Empire had already conquered much of this area in the east and they began here and they moved northward and conquered there. They moved westward and conquered there and they moved southward towards Egypt and conquered there. And so when Daniel has this vision of a ram that charged north, west, and south, history tells us that that indeed happened as the Medo-Persian Empire, just 20 years or so after this vision, charged and conquered north, west, and south. And finally, the ram, we're told in verse 4, became powerful. Once again, from history, we know that that Medo-Persian empire that followed the Babylonian empire became extraordinarily powerful. So Daniel has this first part of the vision. He has a vision of a ram that's charging north and west and south that has two horns, one more prominent than the other. This ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And of course, that came to pass, according to history and according to scripture, that prophecy was fulfilled. Second part of the vision. Daniel writes this. He says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. So so we've got this ram that's charging north, west, and south. And now there's a male goat that came across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Note that. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which had see, I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we know that the ram represents the Medo-Persian empire. So uh, who, 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 who does this uh, goat represent? Let's keep reading. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. It's absolutely crystal clear what this goat and the horn represents. The heavenly being who interprets the vision for Daniel tells Daniel and tells us. Here we go. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And for those of you who took Western Civ, you know who this first king of Greece was. It's Alexander the Great. So the goat is not the greatest of all time, although Alexander the Great might be. I think it's Tom Brady, but Alexander the Great might be. Uh, but, but the goat represents the kingdom of Greece, the Grecian Empire, and the king, first king, Alexander the Great. 
We're told that that goat in verse 7 destroyed the ram. This is true from history about 334 BC when Alexander began his conquest across the known world. The very first thing he did was conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat destroys the ram. We're also told that the goat moved across the face of the earth as if not touching the ground. In other words, he was fast. He was fast. If you read history, you know that Alexander the Great began his conquest when he was about 18 years old and finished when he was about 33. And during those 10, 12, 15 years or so, never lost a battle. And to this day, military experts still study Alexander the Great primarily because of how quickly he conquered the known world. That was his calling card. That was what made him Alexander the Great, not just Alexander the okay, was because of how fast he conquered the known world. Once again, Daniel is seeing this vision 200 years before these events actually took place. He's writing this prophecy down 200 years before Alexander the Great begins to swiftly conquer the known world. Uh, Daniel's vision also says that the goat was enraged. That's kind of an interesting thing to say, that this goat was mad, was angry. Well, is that Alexander the Great? Was he that way? Listen to Alexander's own words about conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. He wrote this. He says, your ancestors came into Macedonia and the rest of Greece and treated us ill without any previous injury from us. I, having been appointed commander in chief of the Greek and wishing to take revenge on the Persians, crossed over into Asia, hostilities being begun by you. In other words, Alexander the Great said of himself that he was enraged, that he was enraged. The motivation for conquering the known world and namely for conquering the Medo-Persian empire for Alexander was not political, it was not economic, it wasn't financial, it was purely vengeance. He was taking vengeance. This goat was enraged. And then we're told in Daniel's vision that the goat's horn was replaced by four horns, having been Broken off, it was replaced by four horns. So now we're in the third part of, uh, or sorry, just almost to the third part of Daniel's vision. So the question is, who are these four horns? Well, uh, Daniel writes this. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. Now, from history, did this really happen? Did four kingdoms arise after Alexander the Great? Well, yeah, that's absolutely true from history. Uh, Alexander was replaced by the diadochi is the word. It just means successors in Greek. And there were four generals that came after Alexander that replaced him. Those four generals, uh, none of whom had Alexander's uh, original power and authority, but they did replace Alexander, uh, those four horns, the Diadochi, his successor. So what we have is this two-part vision, the Medo-Persian Empire uh, represented by the ram and the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great represented by the goat. And those things did come to pass according to history. So part three of the vision. Daniel writes this, out of one of them, those four horns that were left, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. 
It grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Here we have the beginning of the interpretation. Who is this little horn that arises up from the four horns? Well, we're told that it's a king of bold face, a king with a stern countenance. That doesn't mean like a king with a big nose or a tall forehead or something like that. A king with a stern countenance, a fierce king shall arise from these four. The, the uh, heavenly being that interprets the dream goes on. He says, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. All right, so now we've got a little horn and what does the interpretation tell us about this little horn? Well, first, the little horn is a king of bold face, a king with a stern countenance, a king who is shameless, uh, without conscience really. Uh, that a king becomes as great as the prince of hosts, as great as God himself, only in his own mind, by the way, is what we're told. A king destroys saints, a king that is against the prince of princes, and this little horn, this king, would be broken, not by human hands. And so the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat represents Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Finally, this little horn, and it's time to introduce you to a man named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was a Greek man, and he ruled in, the, in Greek Syria in the second century BC. So this is after the Old Testament canon has been completed. Antiochus rose up to power. Antiochus was a nasty, nasty man. Antiochus was indeed a king of bold face. We'll see that here in a minute, that he did things shamelessly and without conscience. Antiochus believed that he was as great as the prince of hosts. Antiochus actually gave for himself an epithet, kind of a last name, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Antiochus, God manifest. This is what he thought of himself. We're told in this vision from the 7th century BC now that, this, uh, that uh, the little horn would destroy saints. This was true about Antiochus. In fact, uh, during that time, Jerusalem and Israel was ruled by kind of the Greek empire and by Antiochus. And so Antiochus appointed a man named Joshua, who changed his name to Jason, as the high priest in Israel in exchange for a bribe. Can you believe that? He appointed the high priest in exchange for a bribe. 
And that doesn't work out all that well because the next guy that comes along with a little more money, you oust the old high priest and give it over to a new high priest, which is exactly what he did and gave the high priesthood to a man named Menelaus. Well, Jason was exiled, that old high priest, and he got a little ticked, to be honest with you. So he gathered up an army and came back to Jerusalem and tried to overthrow Menelaus, all while Antiochus was away in Egypt at war. Well, Antiochus heard about the uproar and the uprising in Jerusalem and just became furious. Not only that, he got his behind handed to him. He got absolutely whipped in Egypt. So he came back angry with his tail between his legs and wanted to take it out on this people group that he hated, the Jews. So he came into Jerusalem and began to absolutely slaughter in order slaughter people in order to squash this rebellion. As a matter of fact, the book of 2 Maccabees tells us this, that there was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. This is Antiochus, the king of bold face that does this without any conscience. Next slide, if you would. Uh, that believed he was as great as the prince of hosts, that destroyed the saints, that was against the prince of princes himself. And finally, Daniel's vision tells us that Antiochus or, or the, the little horn was broken, but not by human hands. Shortly after that uprising that Antiochus squashed in Israel, in Jerusalem, he died of an unknown illness. You'd think a guy like that would get assassinated. You'd think he'd get overthrown. Nope. He just died of an unknown illness. He was broken, but not by human hand. Uh, one of uh, my favorite commentators, a man named William Barclay, writes this about Antiochus Epiphanes. Read this very, very carefully with me and understand what kind of individual Antiochus was. 80,000 Jews were either slaughtered or sold into slavery when he came in and overthrew that, um, that uprising. To circumcise a child or possess a copy of the law was a crime and punishable by death. History has seldom or never seen so deliberate an attempt to wipe out the faith and the religion of a whole people, even compared to, 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 to uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, keep going. He, descend, he desecrated the temple. He erected an altar to Olympian Zeus in the holy place, and on it he sacrificed swine's flesh. He turned the rooms of the temple into public brothels. To the Jews, Antiochus was the incarnation of all evil. He's the blasphemous little horn of Daniel. He is the nearest approach to the Antichrist in human form. This is Antiochus IV the little horn that arises from those four horns that were left and desecrates the temple and attempts to annihilate God's people. Now, when Antiochus came in, annihilated 80,000 of God's people in Jerusalem, erected a temple to Zeus in the most holy place and sacrificed swine's flesh. And if you know anything about uh, Jewish uh, culture and history and religion and the faith of God's people in the Old Testament, you know that sacrificing a pig in the holy place was not a good idea. 
That old high priest that I talked about, Jason, with all his faults, uh, started a little group of folks and there was a little uprising. And that uprising ended up being led by a man named Judah the Hammer. Yeah, Judah the Hammer. If you're looking for a name for your child, uh, Judah the Hammer is a great name for a child. And Judah the Hammer and this little group of Hebrews began to press back against Antiochus and his rule and authority. But they didn't do so in a traditional way. In fact, they did so by guerrilla warfare. And that uprising and that revolt against Antiochus IV began in about 167 B.C., By 164, uh, that group of people had not conquered Antiochus. He was away. Remember, he died of an unknown illness. But they had overtaken Jerusalem and taken Jerusalem back. And they were able to get all of those pagan symbols out of the temple. They were able to begin to replace a lot of the temple treasury that Antiochus had taken. They were able to reconsecrate the temple and finally sacrifice again in December of 164. BC. And in celebration, they lit a bunch of candles to celebrate that time and remember that time. And since December 164 BC, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people have celebrated this moment when Judah the Hammer, otherwise known as Judas Maccabeus, started the Maccabean Rebellion and overtook the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes and reconsecrated the temple. And so at the time of the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, Jesus was there and it was winter. He's in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah. The candles that they lit in 164 BC in December became the menorah that you see in the window of uh, your Jewish friends and family's home each December. And for over 2,000 years, God's people, Jesus, and now the Jews are celebrating this revolt of Judas Maccabeus when they ousted the little horn of Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes, and took back the temple. This is the vision and the interpretation of Daniel chapter 8. So, now that we know the vision, now that we know the interpretation, now that we know the story, What in the world does this mean for you and for me today? What in the world does God want his people of 2020 to take away from this 2,700-year-old prophecy, a prophecy that was fulfilled and came to pass even before Jesus was born? What does this have to do with us? And it's just one simple statement, and this is why I think it's so extraordinarily relevant for us here in 2020, is that God is always in control. God is always in control. When Alexander the Great came through and conquered the known world, God was in control. When the Medo-Persian Empire came in and conquered Babylon, God was in control. When Antiochus Epiphanes came through and desecrated the temple, God was in control. Did he like it? Did he approve of it? No. But did it happen outside of his control? Absolutely not. His sovereign power stands and nothing slips through his providential fingertips. Now, I can't pretend to know the mind of God, but let's just talk about a couple of things that happened in history, namely for the people of God and for us even now, that, that, that 
kind of catalyzed the spread of the gospel and did great things in, in, in terms of God's mission in the world. First thing is this, Medo-Persian Empire comes in and conquers Babylon. That ram with two horns comes in and Cyrus the Great, the second horn, becomes the more prominent and eventually releases men like Ezra and Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. I'm sure that the people of God at the time thought, this ram is not good. This ram is coming through and destroying Babylon and take it. So we're going to be captive to another people now. We just kind of learned this Babylon thing. We're going to be captive to another people. This can't be good. And yet it was good because Cyrus released those folks back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. Alexander the Great came through and conquered the known world at the time and was extremely Hellenistic, that is, a Greek in his thought and religion and culture and language. So by the time Alexander the Great was done conquering over about a dozen years, everybody in the modern world spoke Greek. And so when the authors of the New Testament came around and they were deciding what language to write it in, what language did they write it in? Not Hebrew, which they spoke. Not Aramaic which they spoke, but Greek. And everybody in the known world, because of Alexander, 400 years before, was able to read the good news about Jesus because they spoke Greek. Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, was not a great thing. And yet God's people, that remnant, rose up and conquered those armies and reconsecrated the temple. A temple that Jesus would replace with his very body about three, two or three hundred, two or 250 years after. Men and women of God, the, the purpose of the book of Daniel is to tell us some history and to tell us some future prophecy that all point to the same truth, that God is always in control. Whether it's a fiery furnace, whether it's a lion's den, whether it's Babylonian captivity, whether it's a, a Medo-Persian empire or, or, or a Greek empire or Antiochus Epiphanes, whether it's the COVID virus, whether it's social isolation, whether it's economic crisis, God has not lost control. Men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, if I could tell you one thing and one thing only today, God has not lost control. He knows your future and he has a plan for you. He is good and he listens to prayer. He knows the future. He knows the past. Nothing surprises him about what's going on. We ask ourselves, how long is this COVID virus going to take? How long are restaurants going to be closed? What's going to happen with the economy? How long before I get to hug my friends again? We don't know, but God does. He sees all of time together, not as a sequence of things that just kind of unfold. He knows what's coming, and he is in control. This 2,700-year-old book is speaking so clearly and so emphatically to us today. God has not lost control. Men and women of God, as your pastor, if I could just give you some hope that the truth of Scripture stands that it doesn't change, that even in the midst of chaos and fear and confusion, some of that fear is legitimate, I get that, and some of that fear is just anxiety, I get that, I know how you feel, I feel the same way. 
but this book of God, his book of the law, this prophecy, and this character of the living God stands that he is in control. I would invite you, encourage you, exhort you to rest in that today. Just before we started this morning, our, our uh, fearless worship leader, Jenna Cowens, read a scripture over us, and I, I wanted to read it over you now, because I think it's really, really important and, and, and relevant um, in light of Daniel chapter 8. It comes from Psalm chapter 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. My prayer today is that Daniel chapter 8 and the fulfillment of that prophecy would remind you, encourage you, and solidify for you that he is your ever-present help and that he is in control. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for those who have tuned in uh, just now to join us uh, via live stream. For those who continue to be faithful to this community of believers, God, I pray that you would encourage them and bring them hope and comfort during a very difficult and very trying time. God, for those who weren't able to join, I pray as they join uh, after the fact and listen to the recorded audio that they would know that they are loved, that they are cared for, that they are not alone, that they belong here even though we're distant from one another. God, and would this truth of Daniel chapter 8 sink deeply into our hearts and transform the way that we act and interact, the way we see our friends and neighbors, the way we think about what's happening in our world right now, that we would know that you are ever-present help and God, you have always been and will continue to be in complete control. In the name of Christ, God's people together said, amen. I would invite you to continue to worship uh, with us as we sing about Christ, our cornerstone.